Welcome to Dawn's Own, the Deeper Sense podcast. I'm Shahar Peled, your host and guide to the context of everything and the fundamental questions of being, knowledge, and reality. Welcome to Believing the Real, a series of talks on the theology of the real. In this episode, uh, chapter two in the series, uh, we will uh, begin looking at evolution from a new perspective, the perspective of evotrust, a theology of the real, and we will discuss the evolution uh, of predators, procreators, and parents, and what the implications of this trend in evolution may be. Hello. This is uh, the second talk in a series of talks on uh, believing the real, a a look at reality uh, and um, an examination of uh, the trend or the the thrust of reality, which exposes uh, something that, in fact, um, seems to go against what we know about reality. It's like... There, there, is, there are contradictions built in to what uh, we know about reality today, uh, and these contradictions, um, in fact, uh, call upon us, uh, or rather, they are um, they are a challenge for us uh, to develop a theory that would explain the contradictions within reality itself. And in fact, what we are suggesting uh, is the idea of evil trust, uh, a trust in evolution, because evolution uh, is in fact that aspect of the divine that um, creates the world because it is the self-perfecting aspect of the infinite perfection that is God. So instead of saying, in God we trust, Uh, We should say, uh, in God we trust, and how is that God manifested? Through evolution, through the world, through our life, through the cosmos. So that's the idea encapsulated in the idea of uh, evil trust. So in fact, what we are looking now is a a theory of reality, a paradigm of reality, a a theological paradigm, actually, that attempts to uh, explain the inherent contradictions within reality itself. Now, what what does it mean that there are inherent contradictions? It means that the way we look at the world, uh, the the theories that we currently have to explain the world are uh, insufficient to cover the entire um, knowledge of what actually is, uh, to cover our entire vista of empirical knowledge. This is not the first time that we have a problem with our vision of reality. It is always we are looking through a very narrow hole, uh, key, uh, through our empirical sciences at what underlies reality, and we keep generating theories uh, that try to explain it. A famous uh, breaking point Uh, came uh, just uh, with such a contradiction uh, in the shift from the Newtonian point of view to the Einsteinian point of view. Uh, The whole world was 
believing in uh, Newton, and to this day, Newton's uh, uh, equations are applicable in most uh, everyday situations. And yet, there was one point where a contradiction appeared, that Newton's equations were unable to explain the behavior of light. Because light, uh, um, in, in, in a different way from all other, uh, in contradistinction to all other things in reality, behaves in a very special way. It, it, it constantly moves at 300,000 kilometers per second. This is a constant. One of, one of the eight mysterious constants of the cosmos is the speed of light. And this deviates or goes against the equations of Newton uh, in regard to motion. It disrupts the uh, equations of motion. So everyone rejected uh, this uh, and thought that maybe our instruments were not uh, accurate enough. But slowly, over the 19th century, as our instruments became more and more accurate, it became clear that this uh, uh, knowledge we have about light is accurate, even though it contradicts uh, our knowledge of uh, the Newtonian world, the, the way Newton described it. So what, what, how was this uh, quandary solved? How was this contradiction solved? Ultimately, it was Einstein's... Um, decision to say, okay, forget Newton, let's accept uh, the fact of light first. Let's take this one constant, the one constant in our world is light. And it turned out that this very constancy, once you accepted it, made everything else relative. And that became the theory of relativity, but actually is the theory of constancy of light and everything else is relative. So we see uh, an example of contradictions within reality uh, that were solved by Einstein's equation. Uh, of course, what we are endeavoring here is not a scientific enterprise in the sense uh, that uh, Einstein uh, conceived it, although it may be, because just like Einstein, we are here uh, trying to conceive of a theoretical framework to explain reality. And, uh, but the problem is, uh, I cannot at the moment think of any experiment uh, to confirm this. While for Einstein, um, there were clear experiments, the famous Eddington experiment uh, in the uh, island of Principe in 1919, which confirmed Einstein's theory. So uh, I have not yet derived any equations or uh, theoretical uh, predictions uh, from this uh, theory of evil trust, but um, I can uh, and hope to uh, indeed to point to certain trends within reality that um, 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 are explained through this vision of the uh, progress and perfection paradigm of the divine. And also, I think this uh, theological perspective um, settles a number of uh, very interesting contradictions within um, reality itself. Also, uh, we are approaching uh, this whole um, uh, concept uh, from a point of view that is uh, open to reality. 
It is not that we have a dogma and now, now we are going to force this onto reality. Although, as uh, we mentioned in the previous talk, this happens all the time. Newtonian dogma was dogma. Uh, and only reality could refute it. So, in fact, what we are saying now is, look, there are things in reality that underlie, or uh, so, sorry, that undermine uh, the, the theories of science on the one hand, in particular theories of neo-Darwinists about the randomness of evolution, while at the same time, uh, reality also undermines uh, certain uh, perspectives that have become embedded within religions, certain dogmas that would construe a reality in a very different way than uh, what we actually uh, know today. So, in fact, uh, dogmas can be reached at both sides of the divide. Uh, science um, demands that we have uh, a reductionist point of view that excludes any uh, theological explanations to the cosmos. Uh, and in this, science becomes very limited in that, uh, like Mark Twain used to say, uh, if someone has a hammer, then everywhere he looks, he sees uh, nail heads. So in a way, because science uh, would like to uh, do away with theological <coughs> explanations for historical reasons and uh, some reasons that we will discuss in future videos, um, then uh, it tends to, from the outside, reject, from, from the outset, reject any uh, attempt to provide a theological explanation of reality. On the other hand, and this we can understand why science is so um, loath to accept religious ex uh, interpretations of reality, we find religious dogmas that attempt to force uh, their vision onto reality and thereby reject the findings of science. So if we take, indeed, evolution as um, a core bone of contention between science and religion, religion uh, mostly attempts to do away with evolution, to refute it, to say it's a, it's a wrong theory, to go back to scripture and to, to say, look, all those dinosaurs you found in the, in the, la in the, um, in the soil, that's just, uh, they were deposited in the flood or something, and uh, uh, attempts to uh, ignore, actually, the findings uh, of science, uh, actually the theories of science, uh, as and also the finding, the findings of science that are most um, logically or rationally explained through evolutionary um, theory. And of course, evolutionary theory has its holes, and these holes and loopholes have been used by creationists to say, uh, to reject evolution uh, out of hand. So actually, uh, we are going to walk here a very narrow path between uh, accepting evolution uh, as the um, finding of uh, humanity through uh, hundreds of years of doing science, of observing reality, and in particular, in our generation, where uh, all of Darwin's um, observations, which were based on the morphology of creatures and on the uh, geological record, have been um, confirmed 
through our knowledge of genetics. You can go into the NCBI uh, website and you can see all those uh, genomes of m so many creatures and all of them are interconnected. They're all very similar and you can see the percentage of similarity. You can actually reconstruct uh, Darwin's tree of progress of evolution uh, through the genetic uh, perspective so that we now have the inside view of what Darwin summarized from the outside. Now, this is too strong an evidence of how the world works uh, to be uh, uh, rejected out of hand because of previous dogma. And it behooves us, uh, rather than force uh, our previous dogmas on reality, to re-examine reality and see how uh, we can find a better dogma, a better vision of the divine, a better theology that would indeed be a theology of the real, a theology that takes into account the way that the world has now opened up to the forces of humanity and allowed us to see its inner workings and to discover things that were um, um, in incomprehensible and unknowable before. So, in fact, uh, in this regard, uh, we are trying to sort of um, walk this narrow path where we accept uh, evolutionary theory to a certain extent, point to some of its contradictions, and we uh, look at reality to see if it can... Um, be explained by our main paradigm, i.e. that the progress of the world, the progression of the world, is its inherent uh, characteristic because the very reason for the creation of the world is its progress. Because this is the aspect of the divine that is becoming more perfect, that is progressing, uh, that is in infinite motion of um, becoming more complex, more sophisticated, more gentle, uh, more ethically advanced, and so on. And we will, of course, uh, show uh, the uh, various facts on which we, uh, to which we attach this uh, vision. And so now we are going to look at, uh, in fact, evolution and. Uh, try to see if the uh, underlying thrust of biological and cosmic evolution does indeed fit this um, paradigm of uh, progress and perfection. So, of course, uh, from the very outset, it is clear that uh, the evil trust paradigm is um, uh, well suited to some of the most uh, mysterious aspects of the cosmos, uh, i.e. Uh, the uh, constants that are inexplicable. There's a constant. Uh, we don't know why. Uh, the uh, seeming randomness of evolution and cosmic evolution. Uh, I say seeming randomness because all of our equations point to randomness. And also evolutionary theory at the bottom line talks about randomness. But we actually see a thrust, a certain progress that is uh, obviously not random, is obviously uh, um, quite, uh, uh, quite um, methodical in its trend, in its uh, progression. And uh, here, here you see that I brought, uh, I put this uh, uh, 
um, picture of to to uh, uh, sort of image this. So I put the turtle as uh, like uh, a more um, a less advanced state, although turtles are quite advanced creatures. Uh, and at the top, I put the angel Gabriel with his trumpet to symbolize uh, divinity. But of course, this is uh, these symbols are just uh, uh, markers, but they, it's, they don't really um, correspond in any way to the main idea of uh, what we are saying about the theology of the real, i.e. that it is an infinite from progression from the um, furthest, uh, for the most simplest uh, and furthest point from progression, i.e. the compressed world uh, at a point uh, of infinite energy uh, that we uh, now know as the Big Bang, or the theory of the Big Bang, uh, while uh, at the other end of this, um, of this uh, um, scale or this progression, we have infinite perfection, and the world is... Um, becoming infinitely more perfect uh, because it is the perfecting aspect of the divine. And according to the uh, Kabbalistic paradigm that we are using, uh, the, the descriptions of the Kabbalah regarding the infinite making room within itself for the creation of the world is uh, exactly apt for this description of a world that begins uh, in infinite um, smallness in the Big Bang and continually progresses from within itself to some perfection that we do not know that is somewhere in the very, very uh, distant uh, future. In fact, we can say uh, not the distant future, but an infinite future, because uh, according to our paradigm, uh, there can be no end point to the world. And this, in fact, undermines many eschatological visions because we are talking about infinite perfection. So it's also infinite perfectibility. There is no end time. There is no um, the end of days. It's all going to go on and on and on, so on. So this image I put here is misleading. It's just a symbol of the general idea, but it is misleading about uh, the actual paradigm. So um, we have to now look uh, at reality and see how its inner uh, qualities, those that... Uh, seem to contradict um, themselves, in fact, uh, also point to uh, our uh, evil trust uh, paradigm. So let's look at, the first of all, at life itself. Life itself, in general, is uh, something that is inexplicable and quite contrary uh, to the um, uh, to what we know about the workings of entropy, because if uh, the world began with a big bang and it's expanding and cooling all the time, then uh, it has a direction. And this is uh, shown by uh, clear thermodynamic equations. Uh, its tendency is to become uh, colder, less animate 
and slowly the energy level is going down until ultimately uh, everything will have stopped, all the suns will have uh, burned themselves out and the world will become a dark uh, place with, with, without motion, as it were. But along with this idea of a downward slide into entropy, uh, of, uh, of decreasing uh, complexity, decreasing uh, energy, in fact, we have the contrast of life itself. And there is no explanation whatsoever for the fact that life appeared and for the fact that it is such a complex uh, thing. And uh, in all that we do, we do not have an explanation for life, except, of course, the theological explanation, which says that all life uh, is part of a divinity. It's this divine spark that is pushing reality uh, because uh, reality itself is that aspect of the divine that um, progresses all the time. And from what we know from physics today about the actual nature of reality as a quantum uh, reality uh, that is mostly statistical, then we can easily map this onto our theological vision as uh, uh, God manifesting uh, it, her, himself. Uh, in fact, all these um, descriptions become uh, irrelevant because uh, we're talking about infinite perfection and uh, infinite perfectibility, both aspects of God. So the world itself is that aspect of God that is called upon uh, to continue to grow and become more and more perfect. But what is this perfection? What is the vision of this perfection? Uh, can we find some indication of this perfection that the world is uh, striving for or growing towards or progressing towards without um, um, adopting some external received dogma? Can we find this uh, some indications of this in evolution itself, in the development of the world itself. So, uh, first of all, let's look at the world, in fact, uh, and we have uh, the inexplicably uh, strange appearance of the world itself uh, above its randomality. Because since we know that everything is random, then why should the world be as it is? Why should it have these constants? Why should it have uh, the appearance that it has? And how is it that we have a tangible world to live in and that we uh, instinctive, instinctively live within it and instinctively we have choices, we make choices all the time, we have free will to do this or that. Every single action that we take Everything we do is a matter of choice. And even if we are living a very routine life uh, based on uh, the customary or on uh, things that we have learned before, it is something that we learned It is also choice. We choose to behave in this way and that way. And we need a concrete world to be able to do all these things. So in fact, though we know scientifically that uh, underlying all this concreteness uh, are uh, tremendous energies and that in fact there is nothing tangible in reality, and that is the scientific vision of reality, yet we live in a very clear world that allows, uh, in fact, um, choice, allows uh, will to come into effect. 
And this is um, a central aspect of reality that uh, science does not inc include it in its equations, but does include in its portrayal of reality. So we have, in fact, unexplained stability and unexplained progress here. Because, in fact, uh, what, what happens in the world is both contrary to its uh, random nature and to its entropic nature, and yet we see that it moves forward, uh, reminding us again of Galileo's famous dictum, and yet it moves. So um, now let us take a look at evolution itself and see uh, what kind of trend, what kind of progress we can extract from evolution um, regardless of uh, theories about the mechanism of evolution, or rather substituting uh, the mechanistic reductionistic theory of evolution uh, provided by Darwin and by the neo-Darwinists, uh, which falls short of explaining reality because um, uh, statisticians have showed that there is not enough time uh, and not enough cosmos uh, for uh, randomality to give rise to what we know uh, today about the evolution of life. So, the, the, so it falls short. But also uh, religious explanations or religious dogmas also fall short because they have a, a static view of reality and also created reality ex nihilo, uh, uh, God created the world, and the world and God are distinct and, and separate, and uh, the whole idea that the world is part of the divine uh, is perceived as a pantheistic idea and, of, and as a form of heresy, in fact, in, in many religions, um, especially the Abrahamic ones. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, obviously our vision is compatible with the Kabbalah, and what's more important uh, because not with all Kabbalah, with the, with the, the Rav Cook's Kabbalah, um, but what's more important, it, can, it cannot be compatible with reality because our, our test of faith here is not uh, to break our vision of reality because of some dogma and uh, say that, no, no, what we see is not true, God is testing us or something, but rather we turn to reality here and we want to learn from real reality. And within reality, we find a certain development that is inexplicable both from a dogmatic religious point of view and from a, a dogmatic uh, reductionist point of view. So let's go and take a look at what we know of evolution today and see how we can perceive it uh, through our paradigm, our evil trust paradigm that places the real that places the world at the center of our faith, of our belief. And in fact, uh, it takes this vision of science that says, uh, ultimately, um, we can affect the world and the world reveals itself to us, not some higher source, not some uh, divine revelation, but the world itself is divine revelation. And this revelation is revealed to us through the usual filters of uh, human understanding, which is always limited, but always developing. So nothing is static in this vision. So in fact, this undermines uh, both the uh, idea of design, 
creationism as the, the design, the divine designer, and the refutation of the divine designer, because uh, God is not a watchmaker nor nor an architect, but God Himself, itself, herself, God, the the, the divine, is the is in the world. The world is that aspect of the divine that is becoming more perfect. So it's not some external creation and uh, externally created uh, world, but actually we are part of it. We are part of the big uh, uh, developing uh, aspect of God, uh, uh, the, the progress of God from within. So in fact, this sort of sidesteps the classic argument between uh, evolutionists and creationists and saying that both of them are wrong and, uh, and providing a, a different perspective on uh, what we know of evolution. So what actually do we know? We know that uh, the world has been evolving for a long time now. Uh, not long enough, according to uh, to neo-Darwinists, because statisticians have calculated that for Dawkins' vision of uh, the blind watchman, uh, which requires many, many mutations that ultimately lead to the world as we know it, in fact, there is not enough time and not enough world because it would require like uh, something like, um, I, I think like 10 to the 300th power uh uh, um, years to be able to say that statistically this would occur, uh, while in fact the world only exists something like 10 to the 16th or 10 to the 9th, how much is 14 billion years? Uh, it's like uh, 14 with 9 zero, so it's 10 to the, to the 9th. So it's really a completely different um, uh, scale. So in fact... Uh, evolution is impossible uh, from a random point of view. Uh, and so that's one aspect. The other aspect is that there is evolution. Uh, science does describe the way that the cosmos um, has evolved over the last 14 uh, billion years, uh, beginning from the Big Bang, and we have uh, generation after generation of suns, uh, the world has begun with a very, very simple uh, form of one atom, one electron, and uh, actually uh, has been developing since um, the heavier elements have been coming into formation over this hugely long period. And uh, we have the first generation of suns, the second generation, the third. I'm not sure if our uh, sun is the fourth generation or the fifth generation, but on the way, uh, newer elements are being formed, heavier elements, all the heavy elements after iron, I think, uh, I think after 40 on the uh, scale or 42, I don't remember exactly, uh, have been formed inside super supernovas. Uh, in fact, a lot of the heavier elements in our own bodies were once within uh, ancient suns that uh, had blown up. Uh, so it's really a very mystic. Science itself gives us a very mystic view of how uh, the world has developed. Uh, and in particular, when we reach uh, our own sun and our own uh, planet. So indeed, our own sun and our own planet uh, came into being 
something like five billion years ago, the sun five billion years ago, and uh, planet Earth uh, is um, considered to have come uh, into being like 4.2 billion years ago. When I say come into being, I mean coalesce uh, from the ancient materials that are um, moving in the cosmos since the Big Bang, uh, uh, and they coalesce, and then they blow up, and they coalesce again. Uh, ultimately, we get to our sun and our uh, planet Earth, and it is... Uh, from our perspective, uh, quite late in the uh, evolution of the cosmos. So indeed, uh, it is from a very, very small origins that all this has uh, been occurring and on a very grand scale, uh, as the galaxies are so, the cosmos is so huge uh, compared uh, to our perspective. It is really something inconceivably uh, enormous. And this is another way in which reality um, echoes our uh, theological uh, paradigm uh, of infinity. Because uh, when we look at the cosmos, we have uh, a sort of parable for our theoretical infinity. Uh, we see that it is uh, really so enormous, so infinite, although it is not, it is finite, but it is a worthy um, a manifestation of the infinite that this is the finite world that uh, is developing and progressing towards infinity. So, uh, within all this hugeness, uh, we have our Earth, and our Earth is part of the um, slow uh, decline of energy in the cosmos and the cooling of the cosmos towards the ultimate eventual entropy. And uh, during that cooling, uh, in fact, uh, um, the first time um, gave rise to conditions where life uh, can develop. Uh, as you know, we, li we live on a very thin crust that separates uh, the uh, burning uh, magma, the burning um, um, core of the earth and the coldness of space. It's just like, I think, uh, 20 kilometers of, uh, of crust and we have atmosphere like another 10 kilometers or 20, I don't remember. So it's like something like 40 kilometers uh, is our sphere of life on this ball of fire, in fact. So we are actually living on a, an encrusted sun, uh, on the plasma inside the earth, which occasionally erupts and then we get uh, like uh, earthquakes and we get volcanoes and so on. So, on this thin uh, crust, uh, after two billion years of existence, for the first time, uh, there appears life. But what is life? In what way is it distinct? Uh, and why should it be? Because, in fact, it's the same molecules that have been developing and, and becoming more and more complex, heavier and heavier elements, are coming into being throughout the uh, history of the cosmos, suddenly, uh, for the first time, they now coalesce 
around a, a carbon backbone and become a creatures. Uh, although creature is, is, again, it's imbued with theology because it's created, uh, the creator and his creatures. Uh, but life, the, these animated molecules uh, do have, um, are, in fact, they are also not external creations of a, of a creator, but internally created from within the world. It is a new appearance within the world, a new form of organization. And the first uh, molecules that uh, consistently uh, become a single entity, an entity wrapped uh, with a, a membrane that distinguishes it from all other molecules in the world, that it has a self-identity, a self-definition, um, a definition between inside and outside. This, for the first time, appears on Earth with the prokaryotes uh, like two billion years ago, more or less. I'm just it's, it's the general uh, dating that is agreed upon uh, currently by researchers. So this is the first appearance of, uh, in fact, a distinction, a preservation. And this is the first glimmering of life. In what way is this progress? Why should it even occur? Occur? Why would molecules uh, find it more comfortable? Do they have volition even than to just be molecules in the wild? Why suddenly all these elements that have been evolving inside suns suddenly evolve a new form, which we call life? This is inexplicable. We don't understand it. But we know it happened, and we know that everything within these new uh, formations that are able to um, replicate themselves from one generation to another are all the same elements that went before. They are all molecules that were there before and continue to exist in the world. So this is the beginning, this is the beginning of life, is the prokaryotes, self-replicating molecular structures, let us call it that. And that's, I think, the most reductionistic way of putting it possible. And then, uh, this went on for like a billion years. And a billion years of prokaryotes, just these organisms living within uh, the reality of the Earth at the time. And slowly they were transforming the environment. They were making Earth, in fact, habitable for the um, life that would come later on. These microorganisms were changing the atmosphere over a very, very long time so that ultimately it became oxygenated uh, and capable of sustaining much faster metabolisms. And then the next stage, after this first stage of, of an organism versus the world, as it were, an organism alone in the world, we have the new stage, the next stage, eukaryotes, still single-celled organisms, but now they have a membrane within a membrane. They have the external membrane and the inner membrane 
has a capsule in it which has the genetic uh, code for encoding uh, the future generations of this creature. And at this stage, something uh, new begins to appear, and that is predation. Uh, because now, uh, and this also uh, this already began with the prokaryotes, in fact, but at some stage, uh, the single cellular organisms uh, start eating each other. So being a predator is the first interaction on Earth between uh, forms of life. One form eats the other. Uh, this predation has become uh, a kind of uh, parable for uh, red uh, nature, red in tooth and, uh, and tooth and claw, uh, the famous Darwinian maxim of uh, survival of the fittest. Actually, it's not Darwinian maxim. I think it's a Spencerian maxim. And actually, uh, we will see later on that Evo Trust refutes this vision because we will see that it is not survival of the fittest, but actually more in the direction of survival of the sweetest. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm saying this jokingly now, but the, uh, uh, I will show you in future talks how much uh, this is a more apt description of reality than survival of the fittest. Although fitness is there, but what kind of fitness? Is it a fitness of power, of strength, of uh, destroying, or is the fitness of uh, something much more gentle? But, uh, obviously, uh, the first um, progression of reality, the first progression of life, beyond the first prokaryotes that were just uh, imbibing elements from their environment and uh, incorporating external molecules within their inner molecular structure, is the incorporation of entire other creatures, which have it already arranged. Why? Uh, bother to uh, seek all the elements that we need, that the creature needs for living when it can just eat another creature that has already organized it, break down uh, its elements, and uh, have it made. So the first interaction between forms of life is predation. But let's be clear about this. This is just the beginning. It's the first form, and it's still with us. We still eat. We still predation. One life form eating the other is still the main way that we get our nourishment, of course. And 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 obviously, uh, um, the only ones who um, um, use a different method are the plants, uh, which, though they are higher life form, uh, still uh, take... Uh, energy from the sun and they uh, take the elements from the ground and they make the conversion and create it into their flesh. And in fact, I'm sorry, uh, it's, a, it's a bad news for vegetarians, but plants are life forms. And, um, and uh, when we eat them, we eat a life form that has uh, worked very hard to build up its own uh, body by incorporating other molecules. But uh, that's beside the point because uh, indeed we will see that there is difference between plant life and animal life and uh, 
Essentially, uh, we will get into the morality of all this later on, and it will be then obvious that vegetarianism is a, a more moral standpoint uh, than a morally commendable and, and also evolutionarily compatible, uh, evotrustingly compatible uh, development uh, from the point of view of ethical progress. Of reality, but this we will get to in uh, future uh, talks. In any case, uh, the the important point uh, at this moment, at this juncture, is that predation is the first interaction of life. But life did not remain there because when prokaryotes, when eukaryotes appear, uh, and in fact um, they they create the basis for what will then appear on top of them, the multicellular organism. About 600 million years ago, uh, the eukaryotes, the, the single cellular um, creatures, uh, which had a core, now uh, learn to live together. So, in fact, uh, the self-recognition became the basis of creating an entire creature uh, in which many, many cellular organisms live together in a colony, each recognizing the other. But not only that, the new development uh, was that uh, they not only recognized each other, but they now had a division of labor so that some uh, um, single cellular, single cells were in charge of, say, motility, a whole system sprang up, like motility, uh, nerves, um, muscles, um, the ability to perceive uh, all these things that we take for granted in uh, life, in creatures, actually were all innovations, were all evolutionary innovations that were completely... Uh, how should I say, unforeseen. We, we are, of course they were unforeseen. We only see them in retrospect. But uh, they, were, they could not have been predicted from what we knew about the world before they appeared. Why should the molecules, they are all made of the same stuff. I'm reminding you. It's the same stuff. It's atoms and, and electrons, that's the old vision. But never mind, all those, uh, uh, let's call it the, the basic uh, units or the basic um, particles uh, that, that uh, quantum theory, quantum physics know how to describe, they were all, they are all made of this. The world is made of the same stuff. But now we have a multicellular organism. And we know we know not only have a multicellular organism, uh, where all the old eukaryotes are now uh, carrying on in a very different way, uh, giving uh, room uh, to each other and specializing. And uh, until this day, they, they are still single cellular organisms. Every cell in your body is uh, capable of actually. Um, the same functions as a single-cell organism. 
And uh, when we have cancer, this is why cancer is so rampant because there's, and there's so many kinds of it, because what cancer means is that they revert to the wild. Uh, all kinds of mechanisms that control the behavior of each uh, single cell uh, so that it works in harmony with the rest, including suicide every three months or so and replacement by new ones, uh, this, these mechanisms break down and uh, the, the cells uh, start fending from the cell, for themselves. They go back uh, an evolutionary stage, as it were, to the um, uh, single cell uh, existence. So actually, our bodies are uh, the next step, and this next step uh, incorporates the previous step. The previous step, everything is still just molecules. It's still just the same stuff that all of the cosmos is made of. So we see here the unity of the cosmos as well, lurking behind the scenes uh, of what we know about reality today. But what else is new? What else is new is that now there begins uh, to, once uh, multicellular creatures appear, it, it, we see a split that the single creature begins to have two different forms. Sometimes there's more, like uh, like in bees and ants, you have uh, the queen, the drones, and the, and, the, and the males. And so you have female, male, and drone. And there are species where you have up to five different genders. But most of the living world uh, has two genders, male and female. And these two genders, these two genera of the same creature, the same multicellular creature have different ways of coping with the world. Uh, one uh, uh, copes with it in one way and the other in another way. But the important thing is, uh, sometimes they cope very, very, uh, uh, sometimes they uh, cope in very similar ways, sometimes very uh, diverse ways. But in actual fact, it's the same creature. And the only thing that changes is the gender. And, uh, and then a new thing appears, where before the only uh, concept of, of another creature was, can I eat it or not? Is it me or not? Now it's, can I eat it or can I mate with it? Because maybe the other creature is like me. It's someone with whom I will merge to create the next generation. So now, in fact, this is the invention of sex, the original invention of sex, of sexual uh, procreation, uh, of sexual reproduction. This is also an innovation. So we see how the innovation uh, becomes more and more complex and also more and more uh, has recognition in it of self and other, and the other where before it was just let's eat it, now it's let's mate with it, because this other is actually another form very similar to me. This other form, if you are a male, then the female form is the closest to you. And if you are a female, the male form is the closest to you. And genetically, we know that all our genes are identical, both with the male and the female, and there's just one chromosome out of all the uh, uh, chromosomes that we have that bears the gene that de uh, the genes that determine if we will be male or female. 
So if we talk about chromosomes, uh, it all depends on what you got from your, uh, from your male ancestor, from your uh, father. Um, if your father gave you, you always get an X from your mother because the mother has XX. So when the, the um, sex cells are split uh, within our bodies and are transferred to the next generation, you get a complement of 23 chromosomes from the father and 23 from the mother. 22 of those 23 from each parent are identical and they merge and you get uh, like 44 chromosomes, um, one from each parent. And then the, the last two uh, are, you get one from the, the mother and one from the father. Now the mother has two X's, so you can only get an X from the mother. But the father has the X, just like the mother, and it has a Y. If you get the X from your father, you will have XX, you will be a woman. If you get a Y from your father, you will have XY, you will be a man. But you are exactly the same creature. And if you knew the randomness of the shuffle uh, during procreation, this is the amazing thing. Uh, each person now on Earth uh, who is biologically a male or a female, uh, originally could have been either this or that, because it's exactly the same creature with just these added traits that make it uh, into uh, gender specific. So all these ideas, and we will uh, get into it in greater depth in future uh, talks uh, of uh, equating biology with destiny, of uh, making genders an essentialist criterion for segregating humans or for relegating uh, one human being to one status and the other type of human being to another status. Uh, essentially, when we look at evolution, we see that this is just something very external because internally we are built the same. We have everything is the same. Most of our genetic makeup is the same. And uh, only the, this, uh, the difference is this um, difference that we either get from uh, the father or the mother, which determines our gender. We will have a lot more to say about this in future. But the important thing is that this same creature now has two variations and they learn to find each other. So sexuality enters the world and a new type of other comes into the world. This new other seeks the other to join with, to procreate with, to merge material with, so to merge bodily fluids with. So in fact, this is another level. Before you were seeking someone who is not yourself to devour and incorporate uh, that other's substance into your own substance, which is what we do when we eat. But now a new level appears through evolution, the evolution, the appearance of sexuality, where you find the other in order to share genetic material with, in order to combine your genetic material with, to merge yourself with another. If you will, we could say this is the invention of love. But there's all this old joke about the fisherman loving fish. So there is, an, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, an element of love in devouring the other as well. So what kind of love is that? Obviously, the love of the devourer uh, and the love of, uh, is not the same as the love of the uh, procreator. 
and we will get more into this in future when we try to uh, take out the implications of all these uh, innovations. But what is important to see is that we have a trend here. It's a different kind of way of looking at the other, where before it was just the function of devouring the other, now it's a different function. It's approaching the other in order to um, team up, to hook up, to become one. So uh, uh, if we were looking at it from an ethical point of view, uh, it's like they always have this, uh, this, the, there was this uh, slogan from the 60s, make love, not war where the war is when you devour the other, where the love is where you merge with the other to create new life. So this uh, is a new uh, aspect of progress in evolution that has no explanation. We don't understand why it happened. In fact, evolutionists are saying, why, this is so wasteful. What's wrong with the, with the old style of, of uh, the, the, the old uh, unicellular approach of just splitting yourself? Why do we have this newfangled thing that, that so much energy is spent on mating? And they have explanations because of genetic drift, genetic so on, genetic... They have theories. But our theory, this theory of, of this theology, a theological theory, um, which talks about progress, I think uh, maps very well onto the way that evolution is actually behaving. So, what's the next step? The next step, uh, if we look at these life forms that began to appear, uh, then we have fish and we have um, uh, amphibians on the, on the verge between uh, marine life and land life. Uh, and this is about the time uh, that plants begin to appear uh, on land, the flowers Flowering plants is a very recent innovation. This is we, we shouldn't forget plant life. These, these are also uh, creatures who uh, are multicellular, or they have a different approach, and they have become the basis of all other life. But what's the next stage? So we get reptiles, and then we get like a reptile, some kind of uh, ancient reptile, sometime like. 300 million years ago or 260 million years ago, it's not really clear, that splits off for the first time uh, into uh, mammals and fowls, the birds. In fact, the birds, uh, if you look at Wikipedia, the birds are considered to be dinosaurs, to be uh, the new or the, 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 the current manifestation of what were dinosaurs in the past. So what we're talking about, extinction of dinosaurs, not all dinosaurs became extinct. Some of them learned to fly and uh, the world of birds. And some of them are uh, modern day reptiles, of course. So, but also we have the world of the, uh, of the mammals. In fact, these two uh, branches in evolution represent uh, the new innovation in evolutionary progress because they bring something new to the world from the point of view of uh, how we treat the other. Because if we, before we have predation and then we had procreation, now we get to parenting. So this is the new thing. We not only eat, we not only procreate, but we parent. We invest time and effort. We become 
unselfish creatures. And uh, I always I bring this, this is the parable of, of this idea of unselfishness, uh, the number of flights that a common sparrow makes uh, in order to feed its chicks in the nest. Uh, I read somewhere it was like 5,000, but even it was if it's much less, like hundreds of flights looking and looking for food and bringing it in its mouth to its chick and feeding it and raising it, uh, devotion to the next generation. And we see two separate strategies here. We see the, the mammal, mammalian strategy where the offspring is protected within the womb of the mother and the mother becomes focused on the offspring and uh, the entire, and also society becomes more uh, established. You get a society of mammals, you get the males protecting the herd, you get the, the females protecting the young, and it's all about um, a different, a new way of treating the other as someone you invest in, you someone you have maternal or paternal love for, not just... Uh, uh, the love of the hunter who wants to eat, not just the love of the, the mater who wants to procreate, but now parental love, the love of a mother or father who invest so much of their own uh, um, bodies and, and, uh, and uh, um, energies to fostering the next generation. Now, we see here two distinct strategies. One is the mammalian strategy, protects the, 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 the other, the, the young other within the body of the mother. And when it's born, it stands on its feet within a few hours and becomes part of the herd. And then the herd, the social herd, protects it. And the, um, the, the strategy of the birds, the fowl, uh, a chick who is completely helpless, uh, born, uh, breaks out of the egg, external to the body of the, of the mother, and the mother and the father, uh, both of them or either one of them, uh, makes hundreds of flights and bringing, brings food until the chick who is protected in the nest grows uh, enough to start flying itself. So it's a much longer process and on the outside. Uh, you'll notice uh, that uh, the next point of progress uh, in humans combines both strategies. Humans are the only living creatures on earth that also, that are both mammals, the, the, the child, the, the embryo is uh, reared within the womb of the mother throughout gestation, and then uh, when it is born, it doesn't stand on its own two feet like a fowl or, or a foal, like a foal or a calf or other mammals that immediately become self-sufficient uh, and capable of motion, but rather lies there uh, even more helpless than the, the most helpless, uh, helpless of chicks and uh, waits for the mother to take care of it. And of course, society has developed much more. We will go into this in much greater depth when we discuss uh, mammals in general and humans as mammals and the way we developed uh, within the evolution of mammals. But the main point here, the thrust that we want to make here and the, what we have seen up, up until now, this is again evident uh, that uh, the, the turn, the ethical turn towards the other receives a new dimension now because now we have 
uh, a turn to the other that cares for it, that loves it, that just gives it and wants its uh, uh, well-being for its own sake rather than for anything that we want. And this is what we want. It is a, a, a drive. It is biological. It, it is something that develops directly out of the, biolo the biological. And in this, we also find a way that we're saying, look, all these ideas of instincts, of drives, it's not clear here because you see that evolution is preparing the way for more and more volition, more and more um, um, a behavior that is more and more open to decisions uh, uh, because um, finding your prey, finding your mate and caring for your child are different endeavors. They are, they, they are like one on top of the other. And the final endeavor, that of parenting, uh, brings forth a new kind of love, a new kind of, uh, of um, facing uh, or orientation towards the other. And uh, in the next, um, our next talk, we will go into greater depth how this appears within the mammalian world and the human world and, and the appearance of social uh, social evolution or of, of the appearance of sociability within the mammalian societies. With greater groups, uh, each have a division of labor, and this reminds us of the original uh, appearance, if you will, of the multicellular organisms. Now we have societies with multi-individuals, many individuals, and each one of them assuming a different role. Uh, so, uh, again, everything blends one into the other. But we obviously see here progress from the point of view of um, the ethics that begins to appear here, the um, care of another being. And if you will, uh, if we go back to our uh, theological uh, perspective, then uh, the God in the world, the God that manifests, sorry, not the God, you see all those old theological terms, it's so difficult to find the right theological terms to describe this new concept. But let's say that aspect of God that is becoming more perfect is now achieving a perfection that is uh, echoing the ultimate perfection that we talk of when we talk about the perfection of God. We talk about his ultimate goodness, his grace, his uh, compassion, his love for the world. And now we see that from the world itself, from evolution itself, love appears, compassion appears, the care of the other appears. So that... Uh, uh, the uh, evolving world, that divine aspect uh, of God that is the world has began to manifest that aspect of perfect perfection, of perfection in infinity, the perfection of goodness, of compassion, of caring for the other. And this appears uh, for the first time uh, uh, in the evolution of parenting. So uh, you see, like, uh, from molecules, we, f we find suddenly life, and life starts treating other life, and organisms find other organisms, and we go from predation to procreation 
to parenting and we will see uh, in the next talk the further stages and you will see that it's all uh, in this progression and we will have uh, a lot of um, um, ethical uh, lessons uh, to learn from this progress and it will teach us a lot both about reality and feed into our uh, meta theory uh, of evil trust, the belief in the real, because all we talked about is the real, is evolution. You are invited to join me in further episodes of Dawn's On for insights, epiphanies, and the sheer joy of understanding.